0: Hi! Welcome! You made it. How you doing, girl? Or them. Boys, I guess, sure. How are you doing as well? I mean, I do ask that, like, but at the club. Ugh. anyway, I'm getting sidetracked. Hi! <laughs> A couple of announcements before we start off today's episode. So, you may have noticed by all the wayward companies throwing rainbows on all of their products that it is the start of Pride! Click, 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 clap, clap, clap. So, as we all step into the beautiful identities that we all have individually, I would just encourage you starting now and then literally just like continue this all day, every day f- until the rest of your life. But consider what pride means to you, consider why you celebrate pride. And consider, if you're not someone who identifies as being within the queer community or the alphabet mafia, why is it that you identify as an ally? And so I want you to take some time, either right now, maybe after the end of the episode, maybe later today, and just think about what pride means to you. And we have to remember, right, that pride wasn't... It's not just like this little rainbow, sparkly, cutesy, little moment, right? It's not. It is very much still and started as a protest. Why? Because queer people are still vilified so aggressively within our society that has definitely improved over the years, but only for the palatable queers, right? So only typically speaking for the white gays that have been able to and have been just fighting for so long to have the same opportunities that their straight monogamous white peers have. And that's why for so often you'll hear all of the conversation around like queer rights just centered around marriage equality and it's like no law a lot of us especially those non-white queers are not interested in the institution of marriage as y'all have designed it and uh, oof, yeah, I'm, sorry this is not the episode actually about <laughs> unpacking problematic aspects of pride no this is this is Zabuma Foolish yes A <laughs> full two minutes into the episode and you don't even know what you're listening to hi you are listening to Zabuma Foolish with me, your host, Jay, and I also want to take a quick second just to give another little announcement before we jump into Animal of the Week, and that is next week, yes, June 11th, I don't know when you're listening to this, so if you're not listening to this when it airs, then obviously next week will be... Irrelevant to you, but if you listen to this podcast when it comes out, then you might find this helpful. So on June 11th, I'll be interviewing Nikki R. Jackson, Mm -hmm. the one and only. Yeah, so she is actually a biologist. She has done a lot of amazing work around knowledge mobilization and science communication. She started doing this work way back in like 2009 when I was still just like a fetus of a human trying to figure out, you know, what... Rihanna meant in the song Umbrella and trying to, you know, have my first sexual encounter. So, lol. Um, Okay, wow. Tangent moment. Can you spell ADHD for me, Jalen? Yes, uh, you can. So... I'm going to be interviewing Nikki. Really excited for the interview. Um, We're not going to be talking so much about her research, but she's actually one of the co-organizers responsible for Black Birders Week. So if you don't know, this is also (laughs) day five, day six, day six of Black Birders Week. So you can go to Black AF in STEM, their Instagram page, and they have a bunch of events that you can either participate in or support. And they also have Black Birders that you can engage with and support um, on the page. So if you are interested in birds, if you're interested in supporting black people, head on over to Black AF in STEM or check out next week's episode of Zabuma Foolish. But okay, this has been the longest intro ever. Let's just get into the episode. Zabuma mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I remember in the pre-intro when I was like, can you spell ADHD? Yes, yes you can. That was the hint for this week's Animal of the Week. Yeah, I'll give you another hint, I'll give you another hint, alright? Ola, hello, can you say no? Do you get it now? Do you get it now? Okay. Well, some of you might be thinking that it is um, monkeys or primates because you clocked the Dora reference. No, it's not. We are not talking about boots. Uh, 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 Uh-uh-uh-uh. We are harking it over to our home skillet, Biscuit. Senor Fox. Swiper, no swiping. Aw, man. Okay, honestly, T, yeah, foxes are going to be the topic of conversation for this week. But... If I'm being truthful, Swiper was not the first Fox in media that I came across, and if it was, I definitely would have a very different opinion of Foxes because Swiper was annoying, like y'all. Those, I'm sorry, I, I'm definitely a little bit too old to have like watched Dora when it was airing, but I have two younger siblings who are three and six years younger than me respectively. And so when they were on their come up, I would be, I would peep in, you know, I would be a little peek and they'd be on, on the TV watching the Doras, and Dora would be out here like, Swiper, no swiping, can you say, Swiper, don't take my lunch money? And I'm like, y'all, I can't, with the vilification. It's the vilification of foxes for me. That being said, who was my first fox? So I'm, I've been thinking about this, and I was like, who, bitch, girl, who was the first fox that you done laid eyes on? Because if I'm being frank, I have not seen a fox in real life. So it's literally only been media depictions. Hmm. And I was thinking, I was like, was it Robin Hood? Robin Hood, for y'all don't know, like, yes, is that... I steal from the rich and give to the greedy. He had a little moment in Shrek um, as a white man. But if you're a true millennial, you will know Robin Hood to actually be a fox. Um, Yeah, from the animated series way back when, it was a fox and his friend a bear, and the friar Tuck was like a mole or something, and the king was like a a lion. It was a really good is a really good film um, about the story of Robin Hood and like King Louis the 14th or King George the eighth I don't I don't know I don't know Britain and y'all royals you lot and and your monarchies it's too much it's too much mama why are you and then again too like why are y'all why do y'all name all y'all children the same thing like you make it so hard for us to tell stories it was George. Which one? The fourth? The second? The third? The fifth? Like, are you telling me that George was the mo- the, the pinnacle of creativity at the time? Wow. Anyway, okay, sidetrack, can you tell? I am on a tangent moment today. So it wasn't Swiper, and it wasn't Robin Hood, if I'm being honest. Because I didn't start watching things and, like, comprehending things that I was watching until, I don't know, maybe, like, ten? I feel like you just watch things as a child, and you don't, like, clock what's happening however asked me about a video game OMG mama those were so few and far between that I committed every second of those to memory so when my wayward-ass father came through one day with a Sega Genesis and was like do you want to play Sonic bish when I saw that two tailed Fox on the screen that could fly Oof! that was it that was it that was the moment I knew foxes they were for me they were for me granted I'll I'll post all of these, like I'll post references for all of these people. If you like are listening, you like I have no fucking clue who these foxes are that you're talking about. Like you've never heard of Swiper, you've never heard of Tails, or Sonic the Hedgehog for that matter, you've never heard of Robin Hood, the fox telling, then you know I'll go ahead and show you all of these famous foxes over on the Patreon with the extra content for this week's episode. But the gag is I've already talked about foxes. Yeah, uh-huh. So this is a, this is actually a test. This is a test for you, the listener. And you failed it. Just kidding. I'm sorry. You didn't fail it. You you pass, usually, with flying colors. And so um, I apologize. You did not fail. Those of you, however, who have yet to listen to episode one and think that this is the first episode that I am talking to you about foxes. Mm-mm. Uh-uh. Girl. Mm. Ooh, you need to go back. You need to go back to episode one. I believe the title is Dolphin Disaster. So, I mean, it's not really um, indicative of foxes in the title. But go back and listen to it. And you will hear the story of this wild Arctic fox. Miss Mama, oh my gosh, she traveled all the way from, like, we're talking, like, Scandinavia. We're talking, like, over Eastern European areas. Okay, I'm legit. She actually started over in, like, Iceland. And then ran her little foxtrot self over to Nunavut. Oof. That was a wild tale. And if you want to hear that, head on over to the first episode from season one. But we have... To provide a little bit of context, because I was doing some research for the episode right about foxes, and I was like, okay, like what is other than you know foxes in media, foxes in pop culture, like what is it that people think of when they think of foxes? Generally speaking, right? We think of like myths around being sly and being you know the the that fox with the mysterious fox. Like I feel like there's like a lot of mystery um, and legends around foxes, and I genuinely think that has to do with the pers- promiscuity promiscuity, Wow, cannot speak today, y'all. sorry. Um, I genuinely think that that mystery, right that like intrigue around foxes throughout legends has to do with the promiscuity that we have attributed to their relationships, right. And so a lot of people will be like, oh my gosh, foxes be out here sleeping, dipping and dopping, having their cute little polydreandromorphic relationships, polyandrous relationships. We love it. Right. And I think that that in and of itself, that type of love style, that type of relationship in interacting with others romantically and non exclusively is something that humans have yet to this day to comprehend, like on a mass scale. Right. And so I think that that maybe has something to do with the whole mysterious fox thing. But this is pure speculation at this point. Like, absolutely no research has been done to back up that claim. But in terms of the research that has been done, I was looking a little bit, you know, into the history-history of Foxes, found out, okay, y'all, that the term Foxy did not actually start with the movie Gold Members um, and Austin Power, and specifically Beyoncé. Beyoncé. It wasn't Beyoncé, okay? She didn't... She wasn't out here with her... Oof, I'm a gold member. I don't, I, if I'm being honest, I can't quote that film because I watched it once and I don't know anything about it. But I do know that Foxy Cleopatra was one of the characters, played by Beyoncé, and that foxy is a common term that's used for, like, people that society deems as attractive, generally. And so I was like, okay, work. Why, what is the origin of this term? Is it like, do people think foxes are attractive? Like, do people think foxes are sexy? And I'm like, wait, no, mama, hold the phone. Because if we're actually thinking about a weird, you know, sexualized animal, if we're being frank that's that's probably cats you know first and foremost cats are probably the most sexualized of the animals and they're given this like sexy feminine feline persona that isn't based in reality, but I've talked about that on a previous episode, so you can go ahead and check that out. That being said, Foxy, where does it come from? So apparently, y'all, take in this historical moment. So the meaning actually is it's from the Middle Ages, um, and it gained popularity after this writer from the time complained about how women's clothing uh, was so tight that sometimes women actually had to stuff uh, foxtails down the back of their skirts in order to hide the details of their bosoms hmm in order to hide that booty crease. Oh, how we have Evolved as a society I just love it that we have now gotten to the place where we are actively typing peach emojis You know people are posting booty pics left and right at this point. I feel as though seeing some cheeks is about as common as seeing some leaves and, I mean, if you live um, in a place with trees, leaves are pretty common, so, yeah. If you live in a grassland, then I guess, you know, leaves aren't as common, and um, I guess booty picks probably wouldn't be as common there either, because in my experience, grassland environments typically are, like, farming environments and or more rural areas, and they are less queer-friendly, and therefore... Less out and queer people would be about, wow, can y'all spell tangent for me? Because that is the moment I am living in today, trying to get y'all through foxes and just cannot. Anyway, foxes, 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 foxes. So you might be curious, like, what foxes we have here in Canada. And I was actually quite surprised because we have a really high uh, proportion of melanistic foxes here in Canada. So that just means foxes that are black. Hey, come true! Um, So we love our black foxes. But I was gagged because I thought that black foxes were their own species. Uh Uh-uh, mama. They were just melanated red foxes, also known as colored foxes. And one of the most common fox species here in Canada and across North America. The other three home skillet foxes that we have um, native to Canada include the swift fox, the gray fox, and the arctic fox. And the arctic fox was the... uh, was the homegirl mentioned in season one who had such wild times moving throughout the sea ice. Okay, quickly, really quickly before we jump into um, the 626 for this week, I want to tell y'all about the story that came across my screen when I was doing the research for this episode. Oh! I was gagged. true Truly. Why? Because there was this video I came across of this human fox interaction that happened within an urban setting in the UK and it is so funny it is so funny so this human like walks up to this fox and is taking this video and is like oh my gosh I love it and then the fox out like lightning fast just steals the person's wallet and starts to run away and that is so funny to me that is so fucking funny to me I just I like I couldn't stop laughing at this video so I'll actually go ahead and link that also in the extra content for this week's episode over on the patreon but let's jump into experiment 626 actually wait sorry hold up real quickly if you don't watch the show fleabag please go and watch that show it is an amazing television program And it was actually created by Phoebe Waller-Bridge, I believe her name is. It's kind of like a dark comedy um, or like awkward comedy kind of style show. And it follows a young woman trying to cope with life in London whilst coming to terms with like a recent tragedy. And I just, I just love how chaotic the show is. But okay, why I'm mentioning this at the end of this week's animal of the week is because in season two there is a hot priest who is played by Andrew Scott. And if y'all know me, I, for whatever reason, I. My panties melt all the way off when I even just think about that, man. So, yeah, lol, I'm getting distracted. So Andrew Scott plays this hot priest, and in season two, the hot priest is obsessed with foxes. And there is, like, this, like, I guess story or this idea that he has where foxes are, like, out to get him. Anyway, that just popped into my head really quickly and I wanted to share that with you. Now let's jump into the the more gritty, itty, bitty, lovely section of the episode, which is 626. So for this week's 626, we're going to be unpacking a paper that is going to give us a little bit of a window into the polyamorous nature of foxes, yes, yes, indeed. Again, it is Pride Month, y'all! So trying to give y'all a little bit more queer-focused content. And I, um, as a polyamorous individual, I think that there is nothing more queer than engaging in open relationships with other queer people. I just, I truly love it. But if I'm being honest, it's also something that is so wildly misunderstood by individuals specifically and then society at large that it's really exhausting as a polyamorous person to try to constantly have to not only define your love style and your relationship style but have to educate others to the point where they feel comfortable about it, right? It's never to the point of like, okay, I'm just giving you the knowledge it's always you have to continue to explain your relationship style until the person, the other person feels comfortable and for me, it's that is just so incredibly exhausting that I just don't do it anymore so when people ask me about my relationship politics unless we're in unless we're having sex I'm not gonna tell you that's just how um, it's gonna be and if we are having sex I mean I'll tell you but you might not be happy with the answer so I'll tell you after sex unless we're having sex consistently in which case I'll tell you like right away because you know consent is important and also you have to be very clear and communicative when you're a polyamorous individual, especially when you're a solely polyamorous individual like myself who engages in polyamorous individuals but as, a, as an independent party, right? So that could be me entering into other people's relationships. That could be me having multiple relationships across you know, social settings or across you know, space and time. Anyway, this is not about me and polyamory. This is about foxes. So the paper is titled, Polygiandry in a red fox population. Semicolon. Implications for the evolution of group living in Canids. Question mark. I love it. And I'm sorry, y'all, if I'm being frank, this paper is a little bit on the dated side of things. But actually, that's actually that actually highlights something that I want to touch on really quickly, which is that anytime I am looking for research papers. That cover aspects of queer wildlife behavior, specifically like same-sex wildlife behavior, or these types of more complex social arrangements like polyamory, polygiandry, right? It is so hard to find these papers, y'all. They're so few and far between. And when they are, I'm like looking for relevant ones, y'all. Like, people haven't been doing this work for like the past 20 years. Why is it that every all the scientists who were curious about polyamory, about gay sex, about lesbian relationships, about matriarchal arrangements, all of these things were happening in like the 80s and the 90s? Cut to, you know, the 2000s, all of a sudden people got real fucking conservative and just decided to be like, no, wildlife can't be queer, actually, we take it back. So apologies that this paper is a little dated. But again, I think it speaks to the bias that is rampant throughout the field of wildlife ecology and wildlife behavior, right? Which is that people genuinely don't give space or publish findings around queer ecology and queer wildlife interactions. I'm going to change that don't get don't y'all don't don't worry y'all i'ma change that but i need like a couple years to like get my data and then a couple years to like write and get it like peer reviewed and approved so um you'll start seeing like my queer publications by maybe like what what are we at we're at 2021 so let's say by like 2025 you know that's i'll put that out there So, until then, let's read this one, which is from September of 2004, courtesy of Philip J. Baker, Stephanie M. Funk, Michael W. Bruford, and Stephen Harris, from the journal Behavioral Ecology, Volume 15, Issue number 5. Um, And again, I'll... As always I'll share all of this sort of extra content the paper on the stories and stuff over on the patreon Okay, so this week's I am actually gonna do I'm gonna do uh, something a little interesting I'm gonna read the abstract. Yeah, y'all know I'm not like I do like abstracts because they give you like the little -ah -ah Sensation about the paper before you have to really commit and as I was reading this abstract I was actually really impressed. I was really impressed not only because the abstract was readable so like I like to put on lenses of like, you know, just like ab- like public lens. Does that make sense? I don't know if I'm speaking sense to y'all ears right now, but I like to put on a lens, a reading lens, where I um, take on the persona of someone who has had no training in science or research, and I just try to understand the, the material from a very basic point of view. And th- th- that's not, that's rude. I think that's kind of rude. Not basic point of view, but I guess uninformed point of view, right, because I feel as though a lot of the public isn't walking around with, like, jargon and terminology and information that a lot of people, especially within academia, just expect people to have, like, in their back pocket. And so they'll write these abstracts and they'll write these scientific papers with these assumptions, right, about their audience, and I'm like, no, y'all, like, we need to be writing these so that this can actually reach as many people as possible. So that being said, I was really impressed with the way that this abstract was written. So I'm going to ahead and read it for y'all now. So the abstract starts off like this. Candid social groups are typically thought to consist of extended families. That is a dominant breeding pair and related non-breeding subordinates. So that principally, like, obtain indirect fitness benefits from helping to raise the offspring of the dominant pair. Cool. So essentially, all that is trying to say, right, is that Typically speaking, amongst, like, dog breeds, amongst the world of dogs, which foxes fall into as canids, right? Um, They just say that, you know, typically speaking in the wild, there is, like, a dominant pair. So there's, like, a, a matriarchal head, a patriarchal head, and those are the only ones that, like, will fuck and have babies. And then there are, like, all these, like, supporting roles. You have your aunties, you have your uncles, you have, you know, your wayward stepfather. You have that, like, really, like funny aunt who and like that even funnier grandmother and all of these kind of like individuals right who are non-breeding are considered subordinate to the dominant pair and these individuals actually help raise the young of the dominant pair cute love it so the abstract continues consequently The monogamous pair has been viewed as the basic fundamental unit of candid social organization. Oh, I love that sentence. And which is really just saying that because of these, like, trends that we see when it comes to dominant pairs being the one who breed and then having, like, assistance from all these, like, I guess, conspecifics um, that are, like, sharing, you know, space together, that that just just observing that has led us to believe that the majority of canids are monogamous and they pair monogamously right however and this is where the abstract continues however there have been few genetic studies that have actually tested this assumption right so i love this paper so much cuz it literally within the f- the first 3 sentences of this abstract it is telling you right not only what what we're talking about so that is you know, dominant breeding pairs, we're talking about monogamy, we're talking about how individuals get bred, right? We're talking about how that's led to some problematic assumptions that actually haven't been verified. And then they jump into their project. And I love this setup, I love it so much because it essentially identifies the who, the the what, the where, the when, the why, what the problem is, and then sort of how you are approaching it um, to come up with a solution, love it. So the abstract continues, it says, we analyzed the percentage of red foxes. So, vupes, vupes, vulpes, vulpes, I believe actually is the Latin word. Vulpes, vulpes, wow. You know me in Latin on this podcast. It is not a cute moment. We are moving right along. Um, so anyway, they <laughs> analyzed the percentage of red foxes in a high density, uh, population in Bristol, UK. And uh, they did this to determine one, whether groups typically produced a single litter of cubs within a given year. And two, whether male and female foxes exhibited monogamous mating strategies. So they continue on, right, by saying that social monogamy, which is the production of one litter within a social group, right, so social monogamy, was observed or assumed in 54% of breeding attempts. However, and this is where I love that they shared this in the paper, however, polyandrous and poly... Polygonous patterns of mating were common. So multiple paternities were confirmed in over 38% of litters. Ah, y'all. Okay. So let's, let's, let's actually put numbers to that, right? Which is the 54% of breeding pairs, I guess you could say the the 54%, the number that I mentioned earlier. So that was with a study group of 13 groups, um, so 54% of them they were monogamous. Cute. 38%, y'all, okay? However, were polyamorous. Uh, we love that. So that just essentially meant that they it was a situation where litters containing offspring with resolved maternity and paternity. Now, I'm, I'm Honestly, the the rest of the abstract is good, but they get into a little bit more, like, numbery, jargony, percentagey kind of situations. Um, so I'm going to save you all that. If you are interested in the figures and the facts, you can head on over to the Patreon, get the extra content, read the actual paper. But what what did they find, right? Like, what was it that they were actually able to deduce, to conclude with the data that they were able to capture? And what they found was—I'll continue reading here. It says, within groups— Dominant females did not breed with subordinate males. So one of their findings was essentially saying that like, boss ass bitches did not have time for no broke ass niggas. What is that line that Cardi B said? Broke boys don't deserve no pussy. That's right, big bags, busting up the Bentley bin, take a minute. Li- Sorry, um, but yeah, I love that foxes listen to Cardi B and also employ that same girl boss mentality. Love it. Come true, close off the pussy down lips, cause you ain't getting in here if you are some wayward male fox that can't bring me home to bacon. <sighs> I just love that, I love that. So, dominant, um, females, I'll repeat this. Right, did not breed with subordinate males. That's what they found, the, one of the major findings in the study. Another major finding was that dominant males did not breed with subordinate females. Hmm. I'm not going to speak on that at all. The next thing that they found in the study was that dominant and subordinate females both produced cubs with dominant and subordinate males from other social groups, which is essentially just saying that even though you could be within one social group as a fox helping to raise, you know the family of the dominant pair in this social group, you will just go and have sex with whoever you want. You find another social group, you go and open them that bussy baby. That's what foxes be out here doing. That's, what, what, that's essentially what of the findings are saying is that be it dominant or be it a, sub, a subordinate fox, they will still have sex. With and produce cubs with dominant and subordinate males from other social groups. Oh, cute. Love that. Now, this is also really interesting, too, is that this final finding that they note here, which was that the mean adult relatedness in groups typically ranged from 0.15 to 0.35. And that, honestly, that number, i it's kind of confusing to understand if you don't have the context. So it's essentially just saying that. Indicative of more secondary parenting than like first order relatives. So it's essentially saying that like these fox families, these fox social settings, right? The the adults that are actually related within that social setting, it, they're not many, right? For the majority of it, it's actually like just friends, acquaintances coming together in community to raise these little cubs. Whew. I love that, I love that. This paper is honestly, it was a really, really good paper to read, super exciting. They unpacked the results a little bit more, so you can go ahead and check that out over on the extra content. Um, I'll really quickly touch up about the the study site, some of the methods, because it actually will lead us into our what's the stitch for this week. So. As you would have clocked when I was reading the abstract at the beginning, the study site took place in Bristol, UK. Specifically, um, it was approximately like a 1.5 kilometer square area within northwestern Bristol, um, and six social groups were studied initially. But two further groups were formed during the study, so they actually ended up like collecting data on a total of eight social groups. Um, within two distinct territories. So foxes were captured, right, by using cage traps set in private residential gardens. And during the course of the study, one litter of eight cubs was born to a female during trapping, and these cubs perished. So, oh, that's really sad. Like, that... That just broke my heart when I read it, right? Because um, this this is the type of conflict that can happen as as researchers, as, as, as scientists, as we go out into the world trying to collect data about populations that often put individuals, right, members of these populations in direct harm's way. So this is something that I found super eye-opening because as I enter into this summer season, This is similar to the work that I'm going to be conducting with Vancouver's mesopredator species, namely raccoons, right? And so I need to be extra conscious as I do this work of not only the breeding season, but of the potential for this to happen here in the city of Vancouver. For a raccoon, a female raccoon, to be trapped, and as a result of that trapping, her kits being killed or perishing as a result. So that was something that was just, like, I found in this paper as, like, a really strong moment of reflection for me as a researcher, and it's why I kind of wanted to share it with you now. But also, gagaroni, right, is that this research was conducted in the UK, which is the topic, which, uh, well, I mean, again, ADHD moment here, but the UK foxes, it is it's, it is the setting flea Fleabag, the show, with, um, yeah, we're not going to talk about that again. Anyway, long story short... Oh, no, I just said my least favorite thing to say, long story short. Tell me the long story, Um, which I think I am. I'm really just wasting your time at this point. So today's What's the Stitch is going to be a conflict um, about urban, it's going to be an urban wildlife conflict, and we're going to be examining kind of what happens between urban foxes and urban residents through um, a UK example. So, yeah, let's get into what's the sitch. So, what's the oh, sitch? Yeah, yeah. And that is why I am not a vocalist. Um, but <laughs> sorry, uh distracting you. This week's what's the sitch, y'all? I have a doozy for you. Are you ready for this? Okay, I'm going to read you the 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 article title, okay, and you can get a feeling for how gagaroni this is. Ready for this? Killer urban fox attacks baby in her bouncer after sneaking into family home. Oh my lord! Again, y'all remember at the top of the ep- at the top of the episode? What did I say? It's the vilification of foxes for me, y'all. Like, what is that? Title What is that actual title of this article? Killer Urban Fox. Like, th- okay, way to induce fear. And I, this is why I cannot stand it, y'all, when the news generally reports on wildlife conflicts because there's this language of sensationalization that gets used in order to re- create these really strong emotional responses in people. And I'm like, This is so incredibly irresponsible. Y'all are just sowing further conflict between our species when you, like, victimize humans so willy-nilly and then also in the same breath, right, vilify wildlife. Like, that is just... We know that relationships are much more complex and not just black and white. So I cannot stand it when we see these really, really strongly worded articles about human-wildlife conflict. Fox attacks baby in her bouncer after sneaking into family home. I'm I'm also upset with the word sneaking here. Like, what do you mean... In what world, like, I understand that you have been socially, whoever wrote this, you've been socially conditioned to, like, consider foxes to be sneaky individuals. But, like, in what world, in what world do you, does a fox sneak into your family home? And I'm sorry, also, your home with your baby. How is a fox sneaking into the home where your baby is? You know what I'm saying? I'm like... And, and, it, and it didn't. Actually, when we, when we read the article, we find out that the fox didn't sneak in and that it actually just entered in through the back door of the house. Because this irresponsible family thinks as though they are the only animals within the urban space that they are residing within and therefore only have to consider right, how they, how they protect themselves against other humans. And so, lol, I guess socially we are all just in agreement that you don't enter into someone's back door if it's open. But Fox has never got that memo. So this Fox was like, "Mm, okay, let me walk through. And then what happened? So, a seven-month-old baby was actually, um, she suffered bite wounds. Her name was Raya Wyatt. She suffered bite wounds to a foot and hand after the fox had entered the residence and through the back door um, that was on the latch allegedly. And this is what I think is so funny and also probably a case for fox cognitive abilities because the, uh, the ability, right, for you as an animal without thumbs to open a latch and then access, right, the space behind that closed door, I think it requires a lot of not only bravery, but it requires a lot of cognitive skills in order for you to be able to like reason with what you're doing. right? In order for you to be able to be like, yeah, this makes sense. I'm going to use my nose to flip this latch to gain access to this space because I know that there is value or resources in this space or maybe they're exploring it. So either or, I think there's a case to be made here for fox intelligence, um, specifically through urban foxes and their ability to like enter in people's homes. I think that's incredibly smart. But again, I do, I should probably show a little bit of compassion here because a baby was quote unquote injured i'm sorry, I'm sorry, y'all, I'm sorry, but like it this if you couldn't tell the family um was white, and they just went through all of the trouble making sure that the world knew about this horribly vicious violent evil, monstrous fox, and when I say like i'm when i i chuckle if i'm on if it being honest, maybe that makes maybe I'm going to hell. Okay, maybe that makes me an evil person. I chuckled a little bit because the photos that they share, okay, of this baby's ravaged body parts are like they're like they're they're so they're just just barely visible. Like they're like scratch marks. Like I'm like I mean sure, I, still being respectful, right? As a seven-month-year-old year, baby, you don't have the defense mechanisms at play or the experience at, at all in order to defend yourself from a fox who thinks that your squishy, juicy, beefy little limbs are snacks. And so as a child, as the child victim in this situation, I feel for you. I hope you are doing well. I hope that this hasn't scarred you personally um, and I hope that you actually just don't remember this. As a seventh-month-old, I never remembered a lot of what happened to me. So I'm hoping that you um, get the same the same benefit. Um, that being said, your wayward parents need to get, like, two shots upside the head. Not gunshots, because that's violent. But just, like, quick little taps. Like, tap, 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 Ian. Um, just to... to what?! What in the actual world? How are you going to, as a parent, going to be that irresponsible and then, and then vilify the fox? That's like going camping, not at all taking care of your food waste, being attacked by a bear, and then demanding that the bear be shot and killed. Like that is literally the line of reasoning, right? Like you are ent- you as a human exist within a shared landscape that if we're being honest has been designed for one of us and not the other. And if you are listening and you really are, like you're not clocking it, it's been designed for humans and it hasn't been designed for wildlife, right? So If anything, we should be extra considerate of wildlife that we are sharing these spaces with. But no, your wayward selves were like, mm-mm, uh-uh, mama. We actually—okay, this is the part that actually gagged me. So no one knew how the situation happened in the house. So no one saw the fox enter, okay, The only person involved that actually, like, was an eyewitness to this was Rhea's granddad, Darren Boundary, who actually ended up scaring the fox out of the house, Um, but he never saw the fox enter. So, again, this idea that this fox, like, broke into the home, I'm like, "Mm, uh, maybe y'all just, like, maybe there's a little bit of irresponsibility on your part here. Um, But, again, this is a very interesting and unique conflict that I kind of wanted to bring up because this type of conflict is going to continue to happen as we grow and expand our urban spaces and as wildlife continue, right, to reproduce and establish communities within our shared urban spaces. So this potential, right, for this type of conflict is, is, is increasing. But if we're being honest with ourselves, right, is that often we human residents are the orchestrators and main agents of conflict either between humans that we share spaces with, between wildlife that we share spaces with, or conflicts that we cause between wildlife species that we share spaces with, right? Harkening back to our earlier episodes about how, when we let our pet cats outside, that has disproportionate impacts on urban bird communities, right? And so that's not something that humans aren't going out and killing birds per se, but indirectly, right, we're facilitating that conflict between cats and birds. Again, largely, this is all to say, right, this is all, let's zoom out, this is all to say that our relationships with mesopredators, like foxes in urban areas, has to, right be informed first and foremost by behavioral and cognitive research right we can't be creating strategies we can't be creating management plans we can't create we can't be creating or designing conflict right strategies around these mesopredator species without first trying to understand how it, it how how do they understand the world how do they socialize right how is it that they that they explore their surroundings? How is it that they exploit their surroundings, right? How is it that they arrange themselves socially and how does that social arrangement then influence the type of actions that get taken, right, by these wildlife species or the type of space that gets explored by these wildlife species, right? Understanding that we as humans have a lot of work to do into understanding the species that we share space with before we just start calling the RSPCPA and being like, I eh, have a fox in my yard, come kill it, which is exactly what this family did. They had attempted to make several calls to the RSPCA um, to notify them to try and get the fox killed. And again, I'm sorry, like, if you—I'll I'll share the article in on the Patreon so you can see the photos of this child's, like, foot and hand. But, like, it's, like, I'm, like, they had to turn the contrast up so much. Like, these quote-unquote wounds from this vicious killer fox are, like, incredibly non-existent. Like, there's just so barely airily there, mama. And so I'm just, like, how could you have seen this and not just been, like, oh, okay, great. Let me take this as a learning opportunity. Nothing actually happened here, but maybe I should secure my residential space a bit more. Maybe I shouldn't leave my baby unattended around carnivores. Maybe, right, maybe as a human, who gets to benefit from an urban space designed for them, I shouldn't be vilifying others that share urban space with me that are just trying to make a living, just trying to find food, just trying to access habitat so that they can also reproduce, so that they can also leave their babies unattended, willy-nilly, as they go play their Netflix or do whatever. I don't know what this family was doing, but it's just, it's the lack of compassion, right? And the lack of um I guess, connection that people are able to make between the wildlife that they share spaces with. And so to wrap this up, right, the baby was fine. The baby's wounds have since healed. The baby is chill. This actually happened, if I'm being honest, it happened back in 2018. So little Raya has made a full recovery. Um, But the family is still angry that this happened. And they still, to this day, uh, legend has it, they uh, make weekly calls to the RSPCA. Um, No, I'm kidding. That was maybe a little bit too much of me to go on. But I just get so, I guess, emotional about these types of conflicts because too often do people jump on the side of the human victim, right, without realizing that the story is actually much more complex, right, and that the conditions involved Right? Or the conditions required to even have meso predators enter into these spaces to, hap- to for these potential conflicts, right be it foxes, be it coyotes, right? Be it coyote wolves, right. These larger mesopredators with the potential for these more, I guess <laughs> like harmful wildlife interactions, are also the same species that we have dedicated the least amount of funding and time and research effort into understanding, right? And that's why there's this huge bias across the literature when it comes to cognition, when it comes to neurology, when it comes to understanding the behavior of mesopredators and predator species uh, more generally. All right, y'all, I think I'm going to wrap it up here. I have like, too many things on the go right now. I'm like looking at my list, like let me just like, oof. Let me just take this, let me like have a little look. I have like a a bunch of projects on the go, which I'm really excited to share with y'all actually. One is a project that I'm working on with Vancouver Pride. I'm trying to recreate The Flower Fight, which was a show on Netflix where it got, like, all these people from different places to, like, create these massive floral structures. And so what I actually want to do is try and replicate that, but for the queer community here in Vancouver, and then working in tandem with the Musqueam Nation in order to um, create, right, these sort of skeletons... um, for these floral structures, and the, that my idea is that the skeletons will be of not only of urban wildlife, but we can then connect those urban wildlife to the histories of the Musqueam Nation, the stories and the the, the tales that are actually just held um, by that community. And so my hope is that we will then also be able to make these like semi-permanent floral installations throughout the city of Vancouver. Just got this permit approved, so um, I need to actually go spend some time today to like figure out how I now. I'm going to take this plan and put it into action. Um, But that being said, as you can see, a lot of different things I have on the fly. And so whenever y'all can take the chance to, like, come up, support me, I am incredibly appreciative because... I know that you too also have a lot of things going on in your life and a lot of projects going on on the fly. So you just coming here, being in community with me, listening to the podcast, sharing it, right? Like that, all of that is incredibly engaging and and I just find it like a really valid and very very helpful way of supporting me. Um, especially as I'm trying to do all these, these like X, Y, Z different things, and like, if I'm being honest, though, like coming and doing this podcast every week is certainly a practice and discipline. Like there are some weeks where I come to this podcast and I'm like, oh, do I want to record this week? Like. Is it, is it the time? And it's like, yeah, I do ultimately want to record. And all, this is why I love having this space, right, is that pra- practice and discipline is is making me committed to building something for myself, to making space for myself every week. And not just for myself, but for other Black queer individuals and brightening it out now with the interviews into Indigenous individuals as well, right? It's like holding this space and making this community is a practice in discipline. And so... I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's not like it's not always easy, right, to make sure that you can show up for yourself week after week. But like having your support, having that listenership, having that engagement, right, even if if I'm being frank, even if it was just me listening to this, I would still be doing it for myself. But having y'all there is certainly an extra bonus and certainly a motivator for me to come in time after time to make these little episodes for me my community and for y'all so yeah super thankful that you're able to share space with me i'm i'm sorry i'm i just got on this random like thankful moment tangent just feeling kind of grateful thought i would say it uh i'm gonna go now bye (laughs) that's been this week's episode i'll catch y'all next week And as always, extra content over on the Patreon. That's patreon.com slash jauntingjay. If you liked what you heard during this week's episode or if you just like the podcast in general, like, consider going over to Apple Podcasts. Yes! Uh, Leave a review. I would really appreciate it. You know, write a little thing. Maybe just five stars. Cute. Love it. Cute. Actually, you don't have to give five stars. Give your honest review because that'll help me improve. Um, yeah, and as always, if you are not into, you know, extra content, you just want to consume free stuff, then, you know, there's always the data to stuff I have over on Instagram. So, Instagram.com slash jaunting.j. And that's it. Enough plugging. I'll catch y'all next week. Bye. Happy Pride. Ah, sorry, wait. I actually just, I forgot about this. I have to read this excerpt from the article. Um, so her mother, Leanne Boondy, uh, believes that if the attack had lasted any longer, her daughter would have been ripped to pieces. <sighs> like, again, the miseducation of Lauren Hill. No, it's the miseducation of um, urban residents with regard to foxes. Because what do you mean? Ripped to pieces? Like, when have you... What? Do, do you know about foxes? Like again, no. As if foxes are out here just bagging babies for brunch. Like, okay, nah, mama. The, the fox is not gonna eat your little baby for brunch. Okay, it was probably just curious, right? And was just like taking a little sniff, sniff. And apparently, okay, we're gonna t- we're gonna we're gonna go back because the R the R S P C A. Wow, I cannot talk. Wow. Which uh, just stands for—I realize I've been saying that a bunch this episode. I haven't explained what it means. It's the Royal Society for the Pre- Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. So the RSPCA in uh, the UK—they actually—they've like—they've th- like put out a warning to to the general public, being like, as urban foxes. Um, continue to get bolder and take up space within our urban settings like y'all need to be responsible community members and like not have things that attract them to your space and one of the things that apparently attracts these urban foxes at least in the UK is nappies I'm like, how? Uh, that doesn't make sense to me, but I guess go off. We're gonna need some more research on that. Now, to be fair, okay, I have been talking about this pretty like off the cuff, pretty willy nilly. I'm like, "Uh uh-uh, that fox ain't gonna eat your baby for brunch. But there have been cases in the UK that have warranted this type of fear, um, especially around uh, foxes and babies. Because back in 2013, actually, um, a four week old baby boy was attacked by a fox in his home in London. Um and the baby's finger was actually severed and then it had to be reattached through this three hour long surgery, very complex surgery operation. Anyway, I'll go I'll link that story and this story in the extra content on the Patreon. But again, this is just to wrap up our conflict tech section by saying as though as Predators continue to share our urban spaces, we as the human residents who have designed these spaces more so for us than for them have to acknowledge, right, that if we haven't ever given them specific space to exist and live, then we can't really complain when they show up in the same spaces that we exist. And when they do show up, we have a responsibility to actually be responsible neighbors and limit The amount of conflict that we are actually instigating or causing, right, through our own inaction or through our own irresponsible practices, like leaving garbage out, like leaving attractants out, XYZ. Okay, I'm rambling on and I feel as though I've literally popped all over the place. This has been a really wild episode. (laughs) Thank you for listening and yeah. Okay, really quickly, I just realized after signing off that the Fox story from today's What's the Sitch situation um, segment is giving me very A Dingo Ate My Baby vibes. No? Is that insensitive? Sorry, Australia. Okay, bye. (laughs)